1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 19. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he abides in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love, of, the love God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected within us, with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Turn to 1 John chapter 4, we'll be in verses 9 through 12 the majority of this sermon. In the movie, A Knight's Tale, William Thatcher is a poor man. He's the son of a Thatcher. He goes on a quest to change his stars, right? To break his family's cycle of poverty for, for many generations. So he begins jousting. If you don't know what jousting is, that's where you ride a horse and you smash someone else who's riding a horse with a stick. Right as he's on the cusp of making it big in jousting, he's at a pivotal point in his new career, and he falls in love. He says to Lady Jocelyn, I'll win this tournament for you. I'll, I'll wear your colors. Everyone will know my love for you because I won for you. And she says, no, I see right through you. Your ambitions are more important to you than I am. So if you actually love me, I want you to go out there and lose this tournament for me. And the next scene is absolutely hilarious. He goes out repeatedly. It's just shot after shot of him riding out on his horse, getting smashed by lances repeatedly. It cuts to his squires sitting at the sideline. And every time they have this horrified look on their face, he endures pain. He endures disappointment, loss of income, humiliation, all of this for love. Sometimes you can tell how much someone loves you by what they're willing to give up for you, right? How much pain am I worth to you? That's a really crude way to ask, but that's a pretty valid litmus test for love and the measure of love. 1 John 4 shows us exactly how much God loves us. It shows us the full extent of what God is willing to give for us, and it's captured in one word there in verse 10, propitiation. Propitiation is the greatest display of God's love. 
Some of you might think I'm arguing with Rick from a few weeks ago, right? I thought adoption was, well, no, adoption, that might be the highest privilege in the Christian life, as J.I. Packer said. But propitiation is the display of it. Propitiation is the greatest display. It is, it is proof, facts on the ground, God loves me. In fact, in verse 10, propitiation is the very definition of God's love. So as we look at propitiation in this text, we will know God's love intellectually. We'll see what God's love is like, but it is, it is not just an intellectual knowledge because as we receive God's love, we are called to extend God's love. And as we extend God's love, we experience the full sweetness of God's love for us in propitiation. So that's our outline. Know God's love, extend God's love, experience God's love. First, let's define it in verses 9 and 10. Let's read verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. If you look up a definition of love, you'll find something like this, an intense feeling of deep affection. I know because I looked up a definition of love. That's fine. The, the affectionate feelings are part of love, but love is no mere feeling. At least God's love is no mere feeling. God's love is, what was the word in that verse, in verse 9? God's love was made manifest. It's tangible. He puts flesh on that feeling. And how does he do that? By literally putting flesh on that feeling. Keep reading. God's love was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. God the Son becomes human. And that leads to our next point. First, God's love is tangible. It's made manifest. Second point, God's love gives of himself. In becoming human, Philippians says this about Jesus. In his incarnation, he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He, he humbled himself. That's the commission that the Father gave to his own Son. The incarnation mentioned in verse 9 is a self-giving act. From his position of righteousness, of status, and of wealth, God gives of himself for our good, and the hymn puts it beautifully. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself, and came in love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. We sang another line, it was beautiful in that song, the son of heaven leaves the father's side. This is a self-giving act. Jesus, from eternity past, intimately known and intimately loved by the Father, gives up that position for a time to come live on earth. Gives up the glory he had before the world began to dwell with us. Broken, weak sinners. But the incarnation is only the first piece of God's self-giving love. Verse 9, it says that, it's a manifestation of God's love, right? God's love is made manifest. This is a picture of it, an illustration of it. But in verse 10, we get the very definition of God's love. If we want to know God's love, look no further. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is the greatest display of God's love. Propitiation is a word we don't use in regular conversation. What does it mean? It is the act that satisfies just wrath. The act that puts away righteous anger. And I use those words on purpose, just and righteous. Because when we're using the word propitiation in the Christian sense, 
God has reason to be angry. It's listed right there, propitiation for our sins. We're created as God's image bearers. We are God's image bearers created to spread his reign throughout the entire earth so that the whole earth will be full of his image, so that the whole earth will glorify him. His glory spread through the whole earth. That is our basic job, our basic identity. And Romans 3 defines sin for us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We had one job, spread his glory through the whole earth, and we failed at our one job. But our sins are not merely a failure to do our job. God could just fire us and move on. The, the best illustration I could think of, though, is imagine a small family business. They hire a new person from outside the family, and they say, hey, your job is to create more revenue for us. And that new hire, instead of doing that, takes all of their sales leads, sells them to the competition, and runs the, the family out of business. Right? It's not just a failure to do his job. It is that, but it's so much more than that. It is personal. There's a personal betrayal as we sin against God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made for God's glory. Sin is a rejection, not just of our mission. It is a rejection of our maker. It is personal. So God's response is righteous anger. What do you do when something you've made stops fulfilling its purpose? You destroy it. Right? You throw it out. The penalty for sin is eternal destruction. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 1.9. On those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of our Lord. Eternal destruction away from the presence of our Lord. That's God's wrath. That is the righteous anger in response to our sin. It's not merely retribution from the law. It's righteous anger from the law giver. And that is why we need propitiation. All of that background, all that leading up into verse 10, into that word, God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. But if you're like me and you like to try to quantify things, you might be thinking to yourself, how in a few hours on the cross, how could Jesus come and get rid of eternal destruction? How could he pay the eternal consequence in a few hours? Well, when you think about who Jesus is, it starts to make sense because Jesus in Revelation claims that he is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is an eternal being. Propitiation works because eternal wrath is paid for by the death of an eternal being. Jesus, our propiti propitiation, but our sin is also personal. So consider Jesus. He's the one intimately known, intimately loved by the Father from eternity past. If he's our substitute, if he's the one sent to the cross to die in our place for God's wrath to be poured out, well, then it can be validly poured out on him. God's wrath is legitimately administered on our personal and eternal substitute. Jesus gives what only Jesus can give. We just sang that. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of this Jesus. John Stott says it this way, divine love triumphs over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. God's love in propitiation gives of himself. So it is tangible. It gives of himself, self-giving. And notice when propitiation occurs. Verse 10, not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son. God's love in propitiation makes the first move. It initiates. We've all seen the tragic scenario of a rebellious child running away from the house. And every subsequent decision, every act that they make is a further act of rebellion and betrayal against their parents. And yet, at least in the situation of many Christian families, many godly parents, what do we see happening? The parents continue to pray. They continue to weep and and to reach out to their child, to call them back into obedience, to call them back to the gospel of Christ. Those parents are initiating even when they are the offended party in the first place. They don't stop initiating the love to make reconciliation. That's what we see with propitiation. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 19 says it very straightforwardly. We love because he first loved us. Christ died for our sins without prompting. He gave us a gift that we weren't even asking for, right? It's not that we couldn't earn or or that we couldn't experience God's love apart from propitiation. That is also true. But we couldn't even want God's love apart from propitiation. If God doesn't make the first move, we are dead in sin and there is no hope. We don't even want to come out of that sin. So God's love manifests itself, makes itself known through self-giving initiative. I know that's a mouthful, but each piece is amazing. God's love takes tangible action as he makes the first move to give of himself. What's the result? The end of verse nine says it, that we might live through him. Through Christ's atoning death, we receive life. The way John uses this word life is broad, and we don't have time to get into all of that right now, but chapter five, verse 11, gives us a little glimpse into what this life is. End of verse 11, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. The life that we receive is union with Christ. We are in his son. When God looks at us, he no longer sees us as objects of his wrath, ready to pour out eternal destruction away from his presence. When God looks at us, he sees us with the favor of his beloved son. That's what the word propitious means. I had to learn this word this week. Propitious, it means favorable. Propitiation is the act that takes us from being objects of wrath into objects of favor. Propitiation, the greatest display of God's love. How is it that we experience all of God's love that we just talked about in verses 9 and 10? How does this become real for us? How do we know that God's not angry at us anymore? Well, there's one very specific way We move on to verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Our present experience of the the great love of God shown in propitiation right now, our experience of it is loving one another. As you have received love, give love. John's whole point in this entire section of the letter, look over this paragraph, he says it three times, love one another. His whole reason for bringing up the propitiation in the first place is to give this command, love one another. In a moment, we'll look at the end results. What is, 
what's the full sweetness, right? The full experience of that love. But before we move on to seeing the end results of this love, we have to let this command weigh on us. We have to let this command soak us and seep down into our soul. Love one another. Notice specifically, it is one another. John's not commanding us to love our enemies. That's important. He's not commanding us to love our unsaved coworkers and classmates. That's important too. But right now, he is just commanding us to love one another. Love the church. There's one more qualifier, the most important word in this paragraph. What degree do we love, do, do we love each other to? It's that little word, so. If God so loved us to the full measure of the propitiation, that's the level that he's calling us to love one another. In the same way that God made his love manifest, in the same way that he initiated and gave up of himself, that's the degree that we are called to love one another. Have you guys ever tried to paint along with a Bob Ross video? Right? You see this beautiful picture he's been painting his entire life and you've got your own canvas here. <laughs> it's just not gonna look like the way he does it. And yet we have the perfect example and so we strive. That is what we're striving for our whole life. We are striving for the perfect display of God's love, propitiation. That is the measure that we're called to. We're called to initiate love just as God in Christ's death initiated People won't deserve your love. They probably won't ask for it. They haven't earned it any more than you've earned their love. And yet we are called to initiate. We are called to make the first move in loving other people. We seek out opportunities unprompted to love one another. How can we do this? How can we initiate this kind of love? I've got a few simple options. Introduce yourselves to people that you don't know. It's that easy, right? At least the very first step is that easy. It sounds really unglamorous, introducing yourself to a stranger, but you can't love like Christ if you don't know anyone. Second, invite people to meals. There's no better way to initiate a relationship than to share a meal together. Invite someone to a meal. Third, and, and this is where it gets a little bit trickier. It gets more difficult. When you have tension with anyone in this room, when you have been wronged by one another, that happens sometimes. Don't allow that tension to keep building and growing over time. It won't go away on its own. Time doesn't heal all, as the phrase says. Take that first move, initiate. Initiate reconciliation. They might not have earned it. They might not deserve your initiate, initiating love. But that's what we're called to in propitiation. The love that you are called to is also self-giving. Just as God puts, puts himself on the line, just as God bears all of our burden as Christ hangs on the cross, taking the full consequence upon himself, we are called to love in a self-sacrificial way. Whatever position of power or status or wealth that you yield that's where you're called to give of yourself. Do you have extra time on your hands? Don't turn to video games. Turn to loving one another. Do you have money to spare? Don't buy that extra pair of Nikes that's just going to sit on your shelf anyway. Use that to bless other people. 
Are you well-connected in the church community? Don't ignore the newcomer. Invite them in. Welcome them into that community. You use your position of of wealth, of, of privilege, of status, whatever it is. That is how you're called to give of yourself to one another. So we know God's love. We're called to extend God's love. But how does all of that help us to experience God's love? Move on to verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John points out the obvious that God is invisible, right? When when Christ died on the cross, a spiritual exchange occurred, right? God's wrath toward us was satisfied and yet, even when we think of that, we have a visual demonstration. It is the greatest display of God's love and yet that spiritual truth can, can feel untrue at times. It can feel invisible. Unless that invisible God has a way of making himself visible. That's exactly what happens when we love one another. God abides in us. That word abide. It's often translated dwell. God is invisible, but when we love one another, God's here. God's real. He's visible. He is dwelling among us as we love one another. Francis Schaeffer said it this way, love is the ultimate apologetic. If you want to prove to the people around you that the unseen God is real, love one another. Bring a coworker to a care group meeting and let them see what it's like to bear one another's burdens in a gospel-centered community. This is part of why we have trunk or treat, right? We bring people in and they get to see some of our interactions with each other. They get to feel a little glimpse of this initiating love. Parents, the best way to evangelize your children is to love them. Love them the way God loves you. But another really good way to evangelize your children is to love one another. Love the church. Right? How easy is it when you go home on the Sunday afternoon? How easy is it to sit over your Sunday afternoon lunch and talk about all the things you didn't like in the sermon and that you didn't like in the music. That's so easy. And yet, if you speak highly, if you love the church, if they know that God's community is a place where love abounds, love surrounds his people, well, that's going to have an effect. That will make God's love, even if it's invisible at times, that will make it real to them. I do want to address those of you who are not Christians. Maybe you were dragged here by a friend or a family member, or maybe you're just exploring your faith for the first time. My one appeal to you is this. Stick around long enough to see a crisis. Stick around long enough to see someone in the church go through a crisis and watch the way the church surrounds them and loves them. That is the love of God through Christ, through propitiation being made real in their lives. And consider that. As you're you're evaluating your faith, consider that love. Loving one another makes the invisible God visible. God abides in us. But the final phrase is where this passage blows my mind. If we love one another, God's love is perfected in us. At face value, that word perfected just means finalized or completed. God's love is never meant to end with us, right? It's meant to flow through us. One, one commentator compared us to light switches, 
We're supposed to be turned on, right? The, we're, we're connected to the source of power, but if we're, if, if we're turned off, it just ends with us. That's not how God's love is meant to work. It's meant to flow through us into the light and give light into the entire house. We are light switches flipped on. In the same way we receive love from God, it flows through us to bless the whole world. That's part of what it means that God's love is perfected in us. It's only perfect, it's only complete when it travels its intended circuit through our lives. But there's a more specific and a more concrete way that God's love is perfected in us, and it's found in verse 17. That same word, perfected, it's used twice in verse 17 and 18. Let's read it. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This is how we experience God's love in propitiation. When we think of God sitting over us as judge, and we think of the accuser on our side spilling out everything that we've ever done wrong, and we know those are direct offenses to the one who is judging over us, we stand there confidently. We stand there brazenly knowing this guy loves me. How? All of this stems back to propitiation, right? He gave his own son for me. The measure of his love, right? We started out, how do we know the measure of someone's love? It's what they're, what they're willing to give up for you. He gave up his own son for me. Of course he loves me deeply. Of course I'm accepted despite all of my personal offenses, but the part of this passage that blows my mind is that we don't just gain this confidence by looking back at propitiation. We do, of course, that's the basis of our confidence. But what's the immediate source of this confidence in verse 12? What is the immediate source of God's love being perfect in us? It's our love for one another. Our love for one another gives us confidence. The way you care for the people in the pews in front of you and the pews behind you and to your left and to your right, the way you care for them changes their attitude from fear in judgment to confidence before God in judgment. That meal that you brought to the sick member, that brought them confidence before God in judgment. This is amazing. The, the, the way you initiated despite Tension, despite being wronged, the way you initiated and forgave, gave of yourself, that brought confidence in the day of judgment. That's what we're called to. This should fire us up, right? My, my goal in this sermon is that, that you don't have to be told to love. You see this amazing benefit. What does it do to love one another? It makes them confident before God. I, I hope that I don't have to tell you to love, but I do want to give you a few ideas of how. How can we love? How can we make each other confident before God in judgment? First, I think it's obvious, but you can't give or receive love like this if you're not known. You have to be known. You have to show up, right? You can't just be here for an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning leave and expect to have this kind of confidence before God in judgment. Show up. I think the number one way, the best way that you can do that is by joining a care group. Join a care group, a community of people committed to loving one another personally, to bearing each other's burdens. That's how we extend this love of God in propitiation. Number two, you are called to initiate. 
to make the first move. Nobody wants to do it. Sometimes it backfires on you, right? It feels risky putting yourself out there. Make the first move. You can't just reciprocate. Imagine if God in all of his love only reciprocated. We would still be standing before him condemned. Make the first move you have to initiate. Invite someone to lunch or strive to resolve a conflict that has gone on too long. Determine right now that you're gonna do that. That's how you extend the love of propitiation. Third, consider what you have to give. God's love gives of itself for the good of others. Take an inventory of your own life. What is it that you have? Is it, is it time? Is it physical strength, empathy, money, a welcoming family? Take that inventory of your own life. See what you have to give and give of yourself to others. That's the reason propitiation works because Christ came down from heaven. He had to give what no one else could give and so he did. He had that available to him and so he gave and here we are in favor before God. In all of this, in the way you love, in the way you initiate, in the way that you give of yourselves to others, God's love will become more real. God will abide in you and his love will be made perfect. We will stand, all of us, one another, all of us together will stand with confidence before God in judgment. Love like that, that is a high calling. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your example of love, your love that initiated that made itself manifest, your love that gave up of yourself for our good. God, let us love like that. I pray that our love will not be some sloppy version of a Bob Ross painting, right? That it will be an accurate demonstration of your love for us. Thank you that you empower us, that we receive life from the mission of Christ. And in that new life, in union with Christ, we can actually give this kind of love. We are enabled. So help us to do it. And as we do that, God, change our mindset toward you. Give us confidence in the day of judgment. Let us stand before you knowing that when we are judged, you love us deeply. We will be accepted. Amen.